This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Today is August 2nd of 2022. August 2nd is a big day for the Michelle Lawless case, the entire story. First, it's Michelle Lawless's birthday. So we're thinking about Michelle's family today as another birthday passes without cake and candles. The Lawless family made a big deal out of birthdays, sometimes having multiple celebrations. August 2nd is also the date where Josh Kieser was given his sentence of 60 years of prison. The innocent young man learned on this date he'd be spending six decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And on this particular day, here in 2022, it's also primary election day, and the political results from today will determine who will lead this case going forward as well as all of Scott County, Missouri's criminal cases, beginning in 2023. It's just a primary, but no Democrat has announced a run for this office. I wanted to share some thoughts today, because these three elements, the celebration of Michelle's birth, the unfair sentencing of Josh Kieser, and today's election are all tied together. Michelle never should have been killed. Josh never should have been convicted. And the prosecutor in charge back in 1993 should never have taken the case to trial in the first place. The local prosecutor at the time was Christy Baker Neal. Baker Neal died a couple years ago as I was in the middle of my investigation. She was the prosecutor who made the notorious decision to get an indictment and proceed to charge Josh Kieser with the murder. She bumbled her way through the case. She lost the minutes of the grand jury, and despite a judge's order, she could not produce them. Baker Neal proceeded with a prosecution that was based on thin ice, and that was even before two of the jailhouse snitches began to recant their stories. She had the power the authority, and the responsibility to drop the charges against Josh Kieser. But she didn't do that. She was the county's elected prosecutor. Even knowing the problems with the case, she went along with Bill Farrell's scheme to give murderer Wade Howard leniency in his first-degree murder case in exchange for testimony against Josh Kieser. This case was hers. She did seek help from the Missouri Attorney General's office, thus the introduction of Kenny Holsoff to this cluster of unjust misconduct. Kenny Holsoff was also a prosecutor. He was a rising star in the Attorney General's office. He was once a local prosecutor, also having worked with Morley Swingle at one point in Cape Girardeau County. Holsoff also had a duty and responsibility to do the right thing in this case, to pursue justice rather than a W in the win column. He did not live up to this standard. He lied to the jury to convict Josh. He told the jury things he knew were not true. He went on to do similar things in other cases in Missouri. Then he was elected to Congress, and he almost won the governor's seat in the state of Missouri. And I mentioned Morley Swingle earlier. He was elected many times in Cape Girardeau County, and I knew Morley, and I liked him. But his actions in Josh's case were catastrophic for Josh. The minute two snitches recanted, 
Morley Swingle should have pulled the plug on any and all deals still on the table. Three prosecutors in this case actively played a role in a serious miscarriage of justice. I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and uh, that's when we saw Michelle. Is uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at He had said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I didn't take but a split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Matt. Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or friend. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I, I don't know. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he's, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says, it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Now let me get into the grand jury minutes a bit. The setting is the trial in St. Genevieve. It's June 17th, 1994, sometime in the morning. The trial hasn't begun yet. The jury still hasn't been seated. The attorneys are doing a short meeting with the judge before the jury selection is set to resume. They're about ready to start, and Kenny Holsoff is already half apologizing to the judge because his colleague, Christy Baker-Neal, is not yet there. He tells Judge Stan Murphy that he is prepared to move forward on behalf of the state. Al Lowe's, Josh's lead attorney, asks, Do you have the grand jury minutes? Baker Neal, now in the courtroom, shakes her head. Judge Murphy responds, What is your problem and excuse for not bringing those grand jury minutes that I have ordered you to do so? I can't find them, Judge, she said. I looked all weekend. I told Mr. Lowe's that I was going to look again last night. But see, the judge responded, that order was dated some time ago. It wasn't a weekend thing to do. It was a last week or week before. You didn't start looking until Friday at noon? It was Tuesday, Baker Neal said. I looked for them before that, but that was the only time that I had to do it exclusively. Lowe's responded, the statutes require that we have either a transcript or minutes, and they don't have a transcript, and they don't have minutes, and there are no minutes available. You don't have either one of them for them? The judge asked. Not today, I don't, she said. Well, the judge said, you never had a transcript, did you? They told us early on that they didn't have a transcript, and I don't think they have to. If they don't have a transcript, then they have minutes. Then David Rosner, Josh's other attorney, chimed in, saying, Well, Your Honor, we have been asking for those since July 6th, 1993. Baker Neal responded, the first request that I received was last Tuesday. If you look at our Rule 2503 request, which was filed, I believe, on July 6th, it was requested that the minutes, maybe I could have looked more, Baker Neal interjected, but I was running 16 criminal histories, only three of which came back with his. The judge responded, but you didn't really have to do that. That was the sheriff's office's duty on that, wasn't it? Yes, sir, Baker Neal replied, 
but I had to set it all together to get it done. I was in two nine-hour days. I had depositions last week after that order for a double homicide that we had in Sykeston. And then Friday, we were putting out complaints for suspects for armed robbery, which had just occurred. I just haven't had enough hours in the day, frankly. Last night was the same way. Anything else? The judge asked. I can go back to Sykeston tonight and try it again, she said. Is there somebody in your office who has got eyes and ability to read and sift through the material like a secretary, like an investigator, like an assistant? We just don't have enough hours in the day, she said. We are extremely understaffed down there, Judge. That is one of the reasons that we brought in the AG's office for this case. And with that, the court proceeded with the business of selecting jurors. The grand jury minutes were never found, never handed over to the fence, and not included in any files that I have seen. Now, Holsoff did handle most of the case, but one thing I don't think I've mentioned in the podcast so far is that Baker Neal did have a hand in the closing arguments. She took her turn first, Al Lowe's went second, and then Holsoff wrapped it up at the end. And this is what Baker Neal said in her opening, at least portions of it. I am pleased to have this opportunity to finally get to stand up and speak in front of you, she told the jury. As you know, I am the Scott County Prosecuting Attorney. You may remember that. You have relived a portion of Michelle Lawless's life, her family, the defendant, Josh Keezer's life, his family. Things they don't want to hear about and things we don't want to talk about. That is the reason why we are here. Back on November 8, 1992, Michelle Lawless was gunned down in her automobile on the exit ramp of the interchange of Highway 77 and I-55. You all have an extremely tough decision to make here today. We pointed that out to you in opening statements, that this is a tough case. We don't have a weapon. We don't have an eyewitness. I anticipate the defense will come up here and stand before you and give you a more lengthy version of this type of argument. Keezer Boy is innocent, and they have a bunch of snitches that their mamas wouldn't even believe, and the physical evidence absolutely excludes their client from being there. It's easy to come to that conclusion. Now I'm going to step out just a minute and just reflect on that. Those were the actual words Scott County Prosecutor said in her opening statement. They have a bunch of snitches that their mamas wouldn't even believe, and the physical evidence absolutely excludes their client from being there. It is easy to come to that conclusion. The prosecutor said that. She said it's easy to come to the conclusion that the physical evidence excluded Josh. She admitted that the snitches were questionable. And by this time she knew, as did Holsoff and the others, that multiple snitches claimed the story on Josh was made up to acquire leniency. Yet she marched on. Officers followed lead after lead, she said. They were all false. Nothing came to light, no suspects, and anyone who may have been considered a suspect was discounted. Just a complete string of false leads. Yeah, Baker Neal said that too. She knew about all the changing stories from Mark Abbott. Plus, in my opinion, not enough scrutiny was given to Lyle Day and Ray Ring. About four months later, she continued, In the Cape Girardeau County Jail, Sean Mangus contacted Deputy Jordan of the Cape Girardeau Sheriff's Department and said, I need to talk to somebody. An officer spoke to Sean, and Sean indicated that 
he knew of someone who committed the murder and that it was Josh Keezer. And this is when he told me and this is what he told me. And from then on, things just clicked. Things started opening up. Here's a name that we had never heard before. We didn't even know that he had ever been to the boot hill since he was from Kankakee, Illinois. Suddenly, we started discovering that he dates a girl from Benton, Amanda Drury, that he used to travel back and forth from Benton on a bicycle or by catching rides and sometimes on foot. He did all this through the summer to see Amanda, and he could just go about anywhere without a vehicle. Then we found out that they used to ride around in Christy Nail's car, and we learned that Christy Nail lived about a mile and a half or two miles from the Benton Interchange where the murder occurred. Then we found out that Christy Nail's keys were missing about two weeks after the murder. Then we discovered that Joshua Keezer knew where their keys were. Based on that, a photo lineup was shown to Mark Abbott, who first found the body. Mark Abbott, without hesitation, said that's him. That is the guy he had on a black leather jacket. Then right after he was arrested, based on that identification, Trooper Don Windham met with him on the way back from Kankakee, and he started about how he could get guns anytime and that he was a good shot. Again, let me step out of this for a minute. And if you've listened to the last episode, you know that Josh claims he never talked about being a good shot with a pistol, only that he had shot a rifle as a Boy Scout and the instructor told him he was a good shot. Then tests were run, she continued, and we found blood on the black leather jacket or a test that show what may be blood. Um, no. It wasn't blood. Baker Neal knew, as the director of the crime lab explained in depositions, that vegetable juice can make luminol or the other chemical glow. She knew, as she previously stated, that no physical evidence linked Josh to the scene. But here she is, tying blood to Josh's jacket for the jury. She even told the jury they could take the jacket back to the jury room where they could see where the officers cut the holes out because they tested positive for blood. They did not test positive for blood. That was a lie. Then we found blood in Christy Nail's car, she continued, which was located about two miles from the murder scene. Again, this wasn't true. We started doing other tests, she told the jury, and they found a bullet that was sent down here from Kankakee that had been fired and had been tested and was not conclusive to the results, but was consistent with what they had with the bullet that was found in Michelle Lawless or lodged in the automobile. Again, this is all bullshit. Nothing found in Kankakee matched anything related to Michelle's murder. Baker Neal went on and on. She defended Sean Mangus, one of the snitches who recanted and then unrecanted. He gave a statement, then somebody talked to him. Somebody in this courtroom talked to him. He said, Josh is making phone calls. You are in danger. There are some dangerous people after you. The prosecutor in a court of law was accusing Josh's attorney of a felony. That happened. This is the person elected by the citizens of Scott County. But we're not done. Then we have to look at Wade Howard, she began. Okay, now remember, Wade was originally charged with first-degree murder. He was lying in wait for his stepfather and shot him when he came home. If you remember the Southeast Missourian article I referenced in an earlier episode, Christy Baker Neal told a reporter that she lowered Wade's sentence at the request of Bill Farrell. She told the reporter that he never made that request before. 
She said she was surprised by this request. Now listen to what she told the jury. Again, this is closing arguments. This is among the last things that they would ever hear. Quote, He is charged with murder second. He was looking at a 15-year term, and he told you that there was no deal cut for him. The fact that Mr. Lowe's brought in here a petition to enter a plea of guilty signed by Wade Howard is nothing. This is what the defense attorneys file when someone enters a plea of guilty in court. They fill out this 10 to 12 page thing that indicates that they know their rights and they're waiving them. And this is what the prosecutor promises. And this is what the range of punishment is and so forth and so on. On Wade's, it was read to you that the prosecutor was going to amend to murder second and recommend a 15 year sentence in return for a plea of guilty. There's nothing in there about testifying. Wade had also told you that he had not talked to me or Mr. Holsoff. The defense was determined to prove that there was some sort of concession granted to these people to get them to come here and testify. We submit that they were unable to do that, ladies and gentlemen. They were unable, in any way, shape, or form, to prove that these people were coerced or promised anything to come in here and sit in that chair and tell you what they recall about the defendant that he killed Michelle Lawless. Wow. I mean, of course we know that that's false. Now, Wade and another inmate, who eventually decided not to testify, stated that they were coerced and or threatened to make statements against Josh. Baker Neal, the elected prosecutor, went on to talk about some of the jury instructions. And then she ended with this. There is doubt in the fact that we don't know how many people were involved, but what I hope is that all of you come to the conclusion that there are too darn many coincidences in this case to just be coincidences. There are too many. Mr. Holsoff is going to come back and argue to you after Mr. Lowe's has his argument, and I'm sure he will go into greater detail and try and point out some things as far as the evidence goes. At the close of this argument, I want to join him and ask you all to return the only verdict possible, and that being that the defendant is guilty of murder in the first degree and armed criminal action. Thank you. Christy Baker Neal spoke for 18 minutes. On August 2, 1994, Judge Stan Murphy had been presented with information that two new witnesses had come forward stating that Chantel Kreider had misidentified Josh Kieser at being at the party. He also ignored a plea for a new trial because the state could not provide the grand jury minutes. In raising his objections, Al Lowe said, I think this is clearly the most grossly error I have ever seen in a case of recent times. It is a very serious case. I have nothing further. He was right. It was a gross error of justice. And that's why on August 2nd of 2022, we're still talking about this case. On August 2nd, of 1994, Kenny Holsoff also handed a letter to the judge. It was written by Marvin Lawless. Holsoff read part of it. This is what it said. 
The night of November 8, 1992, a mile from our house, this Kieser man shot Michelle to death in cold blood. How can we, as a society of human beings, kill each other like that? Why wasn't this man afraid of the consequences? How is it that Joshua Kieser can murder my daughter and walk away to brag to others of this awful thing unworried? I am afraid the Joshua Kiesers of this world are less and less worried about paying for the crimes they commit, and growth of murderous portion of society is alarming to the citizens like my wife and myself. Holsoff went on to say, Judge, I don't think I can say it any better. I would just say amen to that. Justice has a way of prevailing. Juries have an enormous capacity to find the truth. My belief of the jury system continues to be affirmed. I think sort of a twist of irony is that the fact that today would have been Angela Michelle Lawless's birthday, and here we are at the sentencing of the man who murdered her. Judge, we ask that you adopt the jury's recommendation and that you sentence this defendant to 30 years for murder in the second degree and order that sentence to run consecutively to a 30-year sentence for armed criminal action. The judge then asked Josh if he knew of any lawful reason at this time why the sentence should not be pronounced upon him. Yes, I do, Your Honor, Josh said. Okay, you may state for the record those reasons. And Josh said, I did have an alibi, and I was at my cousin's house the night of this crime. There was other people's blood at the scene of the crime, which we heard at the trial. The DA reflected that my blood was not at the scene. My, my fingerprints or my palm prints were not at the scene, and for the 11th time, there was not an eyewitness at the scene. There was no proof that I was even in the state at the time of the crime. I would also like to say that it hasn't anything to do with my case, but as I watch the news daily, I see people constantly being released when their fingerprints or DNA was not at the scene. I, I've seen where people are convicted when it is at the scene. I don't know why I was even arrested in this case, considering there were other people at the scene who were not investigated. The police who testified against me, all of them got deals while they were in jail. Every single one of them got a deal. One of them even got a deal of 10 when they should have got 30 years. Another one who got a felony got it reduced down to a misdemeanor. The other, being Chuck Weisinger, admitted to the court that all three of them concocted this story. Still yet, I don't know why the jury found me guilty. I thought it was wrong, inhumane, and just plain ridiculous. I can't speak for the family, for the girl this happened to, but I can speak for my family and myself when I say that the right person should be put in jail for this, not me. When the law just accepts somebody to be put in prison for a heinous crime like murder, it's not right. Your Honor, I am not a murderer. This is something that I could not find myself doing. It is tough being in jail, Your Honor. I was smart. I got slapped. I got punched. I got cussed at and beaten on, literally. And in my opinion, I don't know of a murderer in this world that would let someone punch them and not fight back. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a murderer. Josh continued on for another minute or so when the judge interrupted him, saying, We cannot rehash the facts of the trial again. Josh asked for leniency because he was wrongly convicted. Then the judge spoke again. I have been thinking about this case off and on for over a month since the motion for judgment of acquittal or in the alternative for a new trial was filed. As I indicated earlier, there were several things that bothered me regarding the trial, so I have done a lot of weighing and deliberation. We have had a jury in this case speak. The jury said beyond a reasonable doubt 
that the defendant was guilty in count one of murder in the second degree and said that the defendant was guilty in count two of armed criminal action. They recommended that the court assess a 30-year sentence on each of those offenses. The offense was undoubtedly a brutal murder. Obviously, whoever committed this murder, and the jury says that was you, Mr. Kieser, did this in a real calculated cold fashion by shooting this girl three times at very, very close range. There could be no other conclusion on that fact that three bullets were filed at that close range right in her face and head. Whoever was pulling the trigger intended that she be dead, dead, dead. It will be the sentence, judgment, and order of the court that you be committed to the State Department of Corrections to serve a term of 30 years for the offense of murder, second degree, and count one. It will further be the sentence, judgment, and order of the court that you be committed to the State Department of Corrections to serve a term of 30 years for the offense of armed criminal action. The court is going to order that sentence to run consecutive in this case. Hello, Lawless Files listener. My name's Chris Holsey, and I'm the host of the true crime podcast, Small Town Forgotten, where we also feature a cold case murder in Southeast Missouri. On Friday the 13th, 1989, a husband and father of twin girls was beaten to death on a street in Bonterre, Missouri. Like Bob Miller, we deep dive into eyewitness reports, expert testimony, and original case files. When there are witnesses, a murder weapon, and a taped confession, How exactly does a murder become a cold case? Check out Small Town Forgotten anywhere you get your podcasts. Today is Michelle's birthday. It's a day to remember her life and the daily grief her family lives through. It's a day to recognize the love her family had and still has for her. Michelle was silly and bubbly. She shared a room with her little sister, Valerie. She and her younger brother, Jason, exchanged jokes. She gave Jason rides to different places. They all had fun on camping trips. She adored her parents. And Michelle meant the world to them as well. The loss of Michelle was immeasurable. Jason Lawless said in a television interview that her death destroyed the family. It's had devastating consequences. Grief ripped that family apart. Grief, it's been said, is love with no place to go. Today is a bittersweet day for the Lawless family, a day made even more complicated by knowing that the wrong man was convicted for Michelle's murder and that they believed the officials who betrayed them. It's a rough day for Josh, too. It's a day that a judge ignored new evidence, refused to grant a new trial, and instead sentenced him to 60 years in prison. It's a day that the judge admitted he had problems with the trial. And in fact, went out of his way to not say that Josh had committed the murder, only that the jury found that he did. Yet he ignored that intuition and sentenced Josh to 60 years. The recommendation of the jury. And it's an important day for Scott County. I thought it was prudent today to remind everyone that prosecutors are a cornerstone to our judicial system. Today, Scott County voters will decide who will represent them in court. 
and Josh Kieser agrees with me. He sent me a statement. Just to be direct, clear, and fair to Amanda and Cobb, whoever gets elected will not only need either accountability or support, but both. We'll want them encouraged and determined to do what's right and just. Amanda Ash has done some good things. Cobb has given his word to do some good things. I'm not sure who is more fit to serve or if either is less fit. I just want the winner to be determined to do what's right and just and to do it wholly and to the best of their ability. When we talk about justice, we must walk that path in a way that's fair and that's even-handed. Christy Baker Neal did not do that. And not just in Josh's case, but others as well. People have reached out to me with stories. When you hear candidates talk about being tough on crime, the Michelle Lawless case should give you pause to examine what that means. Justice is met through honest and thorough investigations. Justice is met when prosecutors set emotions and vengeful urges from the public aside and understand what reasonable doubt is. Justice is protected when prosecutors respect but separate themselves from law enforcement. Prosecutors must have the courage, despite political or personal pressures, to confront police who break the law and violate the rights of citizens. Justice is sought when a prosecutor can look a jury in the eye with facts and truth and present an evidence-based story of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Prosecutors must understand that the concept of innocent until proven guilty is a myth in actual practice. That juries are novices of the law and can be manipulated. Prosecutors must resist urges to embellish. A good prosecutor knows the law, but he understands real-world implications in the courtroom. A good prosecutor protects the rights enshrined in the Constitution. A good prosecutor is tough, but honest. A person with integrity. A person who understands that a trial is not a competition, but the promise of a just outcome. Today is Michelle Lawless's birthday. It's also the day that our system handed down more than a half century of judgment perpetuated by, among others, three prosecutors who did not live up to the standards set forth in the Constitution of the United States. Today is Election Day in Missouri. Please take today's decision seriously. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. If you've made it all the way here into the episode, I'd like to say thank you. And I'm going to take a moment to ask for your financial support. This work takes time, it takes money, and it takes resources. I do this work because it's a passion, because I find it meaningful and rewarding, even if it's sometimes dark and depressing and maybe even dangerous. I do this for the victims, the families, and for those who have been wronged by our system. If you believe there is value to the work I'm doing and want me to continue, I need your help. If you're listening to The Lawless Files on one of the podcast streaming platforms, that probably means you're not a paid access supporter. Paid supporters can get ad-free listening, plus early bird access to certain episodes, 
as well as other materials associated with the Michelle Lawless case. If you'd like to see my work continue, please consider paying $36 for a year's worth of benefits with the Paid Access Pass. That averages to just $3 a month, which is a lot less than other media and podcast subscriptions. That's less than $2 per episode. But you can contribute above and beyond a paid subscription by donating any amount on our website at www.thelawlessfiles.com. We can't do it without your support. Again, go to thelawlessfiles.com and look for the Become a Supporter button at the top of the page. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC.